You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. To answer the great mysteries of the universe, the really big questions, scientists will literally go to the ends of the earth, which means that the journalists covering them have to tag along. That's how Anil Anathaswamy found himself at the world's deepest lake in Siberia. It is in southern Siberia, and I was there to see a neutrino telescope. And the telescope, which is on the lookout for these ghostly elementary particles, neutrinos, is at the lake. Or rather, it is the lake, the deep cold waters of ice-covered Lake Baikal. And I was there for a few days, and at the end of my stay, my host decided that since I was there for an adventure, I ought to spend a night on the lake. And I was fine with that, except when uh, Ralph, my host, said... You should be prepared uh, when you're sleeping to run out of the cabin in your underwear if the ice shakes, because there are earthquakes here, and also the fact that beneath the ice is an active, alive lake with lots of waves. So that really put the cat among the pigeons for me. And I wasn't ready to go onto the ice. And he didn't have to. As a journalist, he was just being asked to get the flavor of what some scientists will routinely do to learn some of nature's secrets. But lots of things had been set in motion. I couldn't back out. And so Anil did it. He pitched a tent. He got in. He zipped up his sleeping bag. And as I was lying down in bed, the entire ice underneath was making these extreme sounds. They were like gunshots. Essentially, ice was cracking all the time. If the crack was really beneath us, then it was a sharp crack of a whip. And that really scared me. So there he was on the ice, ice that might crack and what, open up, split beneath his tent and dump him into the cold, cold water below. It could happen slowly or suddenly. And yet he felt the risk was worth it. Maybe he didn't feel that way. But but either way, for Anil Swami, it was a trade-off. A frozen night on a creaking lake in exchange for learning the story of the scientists who spy on neutrinos for a living. Finding out how these researchers do it and what they want with these strange particles. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's Are We Alone and Physics at Extremes, scientists who go to the driest, coldest, darkest, dampest places on Earth to answer the question of why the universe exists. But by going to the ends of the Earth, are they also coming to the end of physics? Steve Weinberg weighs in on that, while Leonard Susskind has seen double, no triple, no infinite universes. Multiple universes, does it mean multiple variations on the laws of physics? But back to the physics in this universe, on this planet, in Siberia. We return to Anil in his bed on Frozen Lake Baikal. The ice is cracking. He can't sleep. Are you sure this is safe? He asks a student in the next tent. And the graduate student said, well, you know, you should be scared if there are no sounds, because as long as there are sounds, what that means is the ice is holding firm and just reacting to the waves. And the groaning of the ice now became music to his ears. And at that moment, it was like a lullaby. I fell asleep. But... The ice could have cracked open, and it was really, really cold. But he was willing to endure these assaults to gather stories about experiments that could answer the very basic questions about the cosmos. Neutrinos, high-speed particles that bombard us from deep space, might give us some clues. But first, 
we have to nab them in Siberia's Lake Baikal. The Russians, uh, Russian scientists and some German scientists, they are out there trying to look for neutrinos from outer space. So neutrinos, when they come from outer space, the occasional neutrino will hit a molecule of water and vanish in a flash of blue light. And it's this blue light that the physicists are trying to detect. And by detecting and understanding this light, they can figure out where the neutrinos are coming from. And uh, the reason why they have to be there in the winter is because they've been working with very little money, so they don't have ships and submersibles to work all year round. And they've come up with a rather ingenious solution. They work when the lake is completely frozen over, and they built their ice camp on top. In essence, then, they're using this lake as, as a big target for neutrinos that might be coming from, who knows, the depths of the cosmos, right? But, but of course, neutrinos go right through just about anything. So you need a big, a big target if you're going to catch any of them. You, you talk about detectors. What are the detectors that are looking for this blue light in, in, in this huge lake? So the detectors are called uh, photomultiplier tubes, and uh, they're essentially the exact opposite of uh, television tubes. In television tubes, you supply electricity, you get photons out, you get light out of it. Photomultiplier tubes are things where the light falls on them and they generate electrical signals. So essentially, you have these giant spheres, which are photomultiplier tubes that have been submerged very deep into the lake, about a kilometer beneath the surface. So when a neutrino hits the water and goes up in a puff of, well, not a puff, but just goes up in blue light, that blue light uh, then can be detected by these photomultiplier tubes. How many are there? Uh, in Lake Baikal, there are 228. Okay, and, and, and how often do you get a flash of blue light in, 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 a, in a lake that size? It, it depends on the kind of neutrinos. So the real catch would be, like you said, if we were to be able to see neutrinos from the depths of the cosmos, we haven't yet. The only neutrinos that have been detected so far are atmospheric neutrinos that come down from the atmosphere when cosmic rays hit the Earth's upper atmosphere. So it really depends on what kind of neutrinos you're talking about. Atmospheric neutrinos have become quite routine. In fact, they use that now to calibrate their instruments. And, and they can tell the difference because of the direction of the blue light? Is... They can tell the difference based on the direction, based on the energy of uh, the neutrino, which can be calculated from the blue light itself. There are a couple of interesting things about this, Anil. One is, of course, that the Russians have managed to do this cutting-edge physics experiment using a lake in Siberia. Mm. And secondly, they do it for very little money. I mean, they really are ingenious. They are. They are extremely ingenious. I can give you one particular example of uh, their uh, ingenuity. It's, it's uh, These photomultiplier tubes are arranged in strings. So you basically string up a number of them and lower the string into the water, and that string can be up to a, uh, a few hundred meters long. And every year during the winter, they have to retrieve these strings and then um, repair them, maintain them. And one year, I think it was 1995 or something, that one of the strings got cut and just sank to the bottom. And of course, they don't have submersibles and it's too deep to dive down and retrieve the string. And one of the Russian physicists decided that he could figure out how to get it out. He devised a propeller with a special angle of attack for the blades uh, and a pretty heavy one and then just lowered it into the water with a rope attached to it. And the propeller, as it sang, started sort of swirling around and, and making great sweeps at it as it went down. And they lowered it all the way down and snagged the, the photomultiplier tubes that were at the bottom of the lake and brought them up. <laughs> uh, so yeah, beautiful stuff. You, the, the search for neutrinos took you to uh, another godforsaken place, uh, the bottom of the world. Uh, the Scott Amundsen's station at the South Pole, what were you doing there? Um, well, again, um, ice fishing for neutrinos. Uh, it, it's uh, just like in Lake Baikal, which uses water as uh, the material uh, to use as detector. The uh, American and European scientists have uh, settled on ice as the detector material of choice. And, and South Pole and Antarctica provides just vast amounts of ice. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're monitoring one cubic kilometer of ice at the South Pole to look for neutrinos. And that's a much larger volume of material than the Lake Baikal detector. So they can actually potentially detect higher energy neutrinos and things from much further away uh, in deep space. And, and and where is it? I mean, have they have they cut the holes in the ice and already dropped these detectors in? So yes, they, can... they yes they have. When I was there uh, in December of two thousand and seven, about half of the detector had been built. So the detector is essentially 
80 holes that have been drilled into the ice, and into each hole they have lowered 60 of these uh, photomultiplier tubes that I was telling you about. So there are 4,800 of these eyes, artificial eyes. Yeah, that that's have, 20 times as many as the Russians. Yeah, and but that's also because they're monitoring a very, very large volume of ice. Uh, in, in At Lake Baikal, it's about 40 megatons of water, and here it's a cubic kilometer of ice, which is why it's called Ice Cube. And, and you know, one thing you do in your book is you try and relate these adventures, because this is an adventure. I mean, you could go to Lake Baikal. That already isn't in the winter. Now you're going to the South Pole. They're doing this big physics experiment, and that's hard to do. What sort of questions are they trying to answer by finding neutrinos down at the South Pole? Well, neutrinos are extraordinary subatomic particles. They, they come straight at us from the source, wherever the uh, source might be in, in the cosmos. And... Uh, by detecting neutrinos, we can essentially understand things about the cosmos that wouldn't be obvious from looking at photons or cosmic rays or things like that, which uh, which can get deflected or photons can get absorbed along the way. Neutrinos just make it right through most of the matter. And well, if we, but is there a fundamental question? That they yeah. So in, in for cosmology, uh, one of the things that was of interest to me was how neutrinos might shed light on dark matter. So dark matter is this matter that we think makes up most of the matter in the universe and outweighs normal matter by 10 to 1. And if our theories are correct, then at the center of the Milky Way, dark matter particles should have amassed in huge numbers, great numbers. And if that's so, then they would be smashing against each other and annihilating. And one of the byproducts of this annihilation would be neutrinos of a specific energy. And something like the Lake Baikal neutrino detector or Ice Cube could potentially see neutrinos from the center of the galaxy, and that would be an indirect confirmation of dark matter. We'll come back to Anil Anathaswamy's adventures. But, Seth, so far with what he said, it sounds like neutrinos might help us figure out what this dark matter is. Yeah, but more than that, they may explain why you and I are here, why we exist. You mean why we exist at all? Yep, why there's something rather than nothing. It's kind of an extreme hypothesis, and it comes to us by way of particle physicist Andre de Govia, who I talked to at a science conference recently. And uh, you're asking about whether there's something rather than nothing. It all goes back to Genesis, if you will, the earliest moments of the universe. And, and basically the idea is in the very beginning, the universe is really hot. This is the beginning of the Big Bang. That's the beginning, right after the Big Bang. The universe is really hot. In a very hot universe, you have something called matter and you have antimatter. Antimatter is exactly like matter but has all the properties reversed. Wait, Seth, what does that mean, that it has the properties reversed? Well, antimatter is like the total opposite of ordinary matter. Oh, I, mean, I see. You know, it's mm-hmm. characteristics, charge, spin, the kinds of things that, that physicists like to talk about. They're reversed. Now, you may think that opposites attract, and that might be true on the dating scene, but when opposite matter and antimatter encounter one another, well, it's much more dramatic. And what happens is when matter and antimatter meet, they annihilate into light. So in the early days of the universe, matter and antimatter, they were destroying another? Exactly. And that immediately leads to a problem. When the universe is very hot, we think that it has the same amount of matter, antimatter, and light. It's a big soup of things which are interacting in and out all the time. Now, as the universe cools down, the matter and the antimatter start annihilating into light. So eventually, all the matter and antimatter is going to annihilate, and uh, you'll end up just with a bunch of light, and there's no matter or no antimatter left. So, so what you're saying is, in, in this simple model of the Big Bang, you have matter, you have antimatter, you have equal amounts of both, and you know, within a tiny fraction of a second, they annihilate one another, and so the entire universe is made of light, and we wouldn't be standing here. That's right. So in order to get around that, We would like to have a mechanism through which you could generate a little bit more matter than antimatter. And if you had a little bit more matter than antimatter early on, after all of this annihilation takes place, the leftover matter stays behind. It has nothing to annihilate with, and then it just sticks around forever, and then it forces galaxies and planets and stuff like that. So if physicists can only find a very slight asymmetry, a very slight difference in the amount of matter and antimatter during the Big Bang, then they can explain why there was some stuff left over. They could explain why our universe has things in it other than just light. Okay, but where does the neutrino fit into all of this? Well, hang on. It fits in. Right. We want to understand how this asymmetry arises. The way we think this happens is is that if we invent a new particle, which is exactly like a neutrino, but it's really heavy, and that particle decays in such a way that it decays a little bit more into matter than into antimatter, then the story becomes the following. In the very, very early universe, this particle is around, together with the matter and the antimatter and the photons. 
as the universe cools down, all of these particles decay into matter and antimatter. But if they like to decay into matter a little bit more into the, than into antimatter, then you get this effect that we're interested in. So it would be the dynamics of this particular particle that looks like a neutrino, but it's really heavy, that leads to this. So our presence today, you and me being here, may depend on this hypothetical heavy particle that only existed in the very first moments of the universe. So is this particle a neutrino? Yeah, Molly, but it's a new kind of neutrino. Okay, so it's a neutrino, but it's a heavier neutrino. Exactly, a heavy-duty neutrino. Oh, okay, a heavy-duty neutrino. So the question is... So the question is, why would we have any reason to believe that this particle exists? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, here's the thing, Molly. That's where normal neutrinos come in. For a long time, it was assumed that neutrinos didn't have any mass. They were like particles of light, you know, photons, that don't weigh a thing. But then it turned out that neutrinos do have some mass, although we still don't know exactly how much. But the intricacies of particle physics suggest that if ordinary neutrinos have mass, then maybe there's also this heavier neutrino that de Govia is talking about. Maybe there's an undiscovered heavy neutrino. And this particle would explain very well everything that we've learned about neutrinos recently, and it happens to have exactly all the right properties to be this particle that would decay and cause the matter-antimatter symmetry of the universe. So this missing particle would be responsible for the existence of, of matter in the universe. Are you going to go look for it? And if so, under what time scale do you think you might find it? Right. So the neutrinos have to have a very specific uh, This is where it gets a little convoluted. Oh, is this the spot? Hey, no one said particle physics was easy, not even particle physicists. So but the main point is that this heavy neutrino would decay into slightly different amounts of matter and antimatter. Remember, we want some matter left over from the Big Bang so we, we can be here. Well, can they prove any of this? We talk about this a lot. We, we, meaning particle physicists, talk about the fact that we might be setting ourselves up with a scenario that can't be tested experimentally. Well, so is there no way to tell that this neutrino even exists? Well, there might be a way, actually. Maybe we could find it by what it leaves behind, and that leads to an analogy with another kind of scientific discipline. Archaeology. And people who study things like dinosaurs. We will never be able to see a dinosaur and study its behavior, what it looks like, and so on, but we have all of these fossils of the dinosaurs, and the fossils are enough for us to build this big picture of how dinosaurs look like. So what we are looking at in some sense is we have these very heavy particles that we can't really study ever, but we can look at their fossils, and their fossils are like the matter-antimatter symmetry or the neutrino oscillations and the CP violation in the neutrino sector. Whoa. Yeah, this, hang on. Uh, that's just a bit of uh, physics of speak, and it only lasts so a so moment. Forth. These are things which I didn't define, but that's fine. So these fossils of this decay of this heavy particle might be all that we have access to, but that's what we have to live with if, if that happens to be the case. Andre Degovia, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Northwestern University is where particle physicist Andre Degovia thinks about neutrinos and how a new, as yet undiscovered, type of heavy neutrino may explain why there's something rather than nothing. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so neutrinos, neutrinos may be the reason that the world exists. Not only that, but they might be why it ends. Yes, it's intense. It's on the edge. It's also Physics Frontiers on Are We Alone? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. If the experiments in physics are getting more extreme, are routinely taking scientists to the ends of the earth, that's because the questions are getting harder. And in some cases, the physicists are just stuck. We have two important theories in physics. The theory of relativity, how space and time and gravity work on large scales, like a galaxy or a planet. And quantum theory, the behavior of the very small. Atoms and elementary particles, such as electrons, protons, and neutrinos. Two theories, when clearly there should just be one. And caught in the cracks is some weird stuff. It's energetic. It's dark. Most of the energy in the universe is a kind of dark energy that's a property of space itself. And while dark energy is what makes up most of the universe, that's not all that's puzzling and dark. That's about three-quarters of the energy of the universe, and 
almost a quarter is in some kind of particle, dark matter particles that we haven't identified. So what physicist Steven Weinberg is getting at is not a little, but most of the stuff that makes up the universe is, well, well, we just don't know what it is. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we have to get to work and figure out what the dark energy is, possibly by astronomical observations that measure how it's changing with time, if it is changing with time. And we have to figure out what the dark matter particles are, possibly by seeing them hitting us from outer space, or possibly by creating them in the laboratory, in in accelerators like the big new accelerator in Europe, the Large Hadron Collider. But do you expect uh, sort of a revolution in physics from uh, the pursuit of dark matter or dark energy, or will we just find some particles that we hadn't discovered before? With dark matter, it will be some kind of particle we haven't discovered before. How much we learn from that, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you when we found it. Dark energy is a more profound problem. It's a profound problem not because it's there, but because it isn't much larger. When we can make rough estimates, back-of-the-envelope estimates, of how big it ought to be, and it should be bigger than what we see by something like a one with 56 zeros after it. Some people would say a one with 120 zeros after it. it shows how uncertain we are. But to understand why it's as small as it is, is the really profound problem. Dr. Weinberg, when you say small, you're referring to the, the effects of this dark energy, are you not? Yes, its effect is that it produces the gravitational field that governs the way the universe expands and is actually making the expansion of the universe accelerate. And from this acceleration, we can calculate the amount of the dark energy. When I say the amount, I mean the amount per quart of space, per volume of space, because this is an energy that's spread out throughout space. It's a huge energy if you consider that space is is infinite, but if you just ask how much energy is there in each cubic foot or quart or whatever unit you want of space, it's awfully small. And the only reason that it's important in governing the expansion of the universe is that it's everywhere, everywhere in space. Dr. Weinberg, you received your Nobel Prize for work on the unified theory of weak and electromagnetic forces, uh, an awful lot of Greek and Latin in that. Maybe you can explain what it is and, and, and why somebody should care. These forces are among the fundamental forces that govern everything in the universe. The, the electromagnetic force uh, holds atoms together. What we see when we see a ray of light, it, that's electro, electric and magnetic fields oscillating in space. Uh, the weak force allows particles inside the nucleus of the atom to change their nature and hence is responsible for certain kinds of radioactivity and for the nuclear reactions that give heat to the sun. Uh, It's much less familiar, but it's also pretty important. Uh, There are two other kinds of force that physicists talk about. There's a strong nuclear force that holds quarks together inside the particles inside the nucleus of the atom and the uh, gravitational force, which is the best known as far as everyday life is concerned, that holds us down to the surface of the Earth and keeps the planets revolving around the sun. We have now a good unified theory of weakened electromagnetic forces, which works experimentally. That's where my own Nobel Prize came from. We have a good theory of the strong nuclear forces called quantum chromodynamics, which was also honored with the Nobel Prize. We don't yet have a good theory of the gravitational force. We have Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is a theory of the gravitational force, but which doesn't marry it together with the kind of mathematics that we use in describing atoms and elementary particles called quantum mechanics. And that's the big problem that many of us, including me, are working on now. Well, finally, Dr. Weinberg, what about it? Are, are, are we going to ever get to the end of physics? And, and if so, what's the time scale for that happening? It could be tomorrow. Uh, there, I could read in the uh, website that I consult every day uh, 
a new paper by some hitherto unknown physicist who puts it all together and makes and shows that it accounts for all the things that we regard as mysterious in today's physics, or it could be uh, hundreds of years from now. Uh, there's no way of telling in advance. You know, Democritus and Leucippus speculated about atoms about uh, 400 B.C., and it, it took an awfully long time before any concrete evidence of the existence of atoms came along. It, it wasn't really until the 19th century, and even then many physicists were skeptical. One has to have patience. Dr. Steven Weinberg, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Steven Weinberg is a physicist who teaches at the University of Texas at Austin and a Nobel Prize winner in physics. He's also the author of a new collection of essays, Lake Views, The World and the Universe. But I have to say that maybe dark energy isn't so mysterious after all. I mean, Seth was able to find a bottle of it, truly, at his local hydroponic store. You know, a place that sells stuff for growing plants. Andre, you've got a gallon jug here of dark energy. I assume this is not designed to increase the amount of space in the universe. What's the, what's the function of this stuff? We usually uh, use it as a nutrient additive. We use it in hydroponic systems. It usually supplements the regular regimen of uh, nutrient, regular nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and micronutrients. So in other words, this, this helps plants grow. Is that the deal? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's actually a great additive for fertilizer. It gets plants to, be, they become more vigorous. Uh, we found out that they, they tend to be a little stockier and, and have bigger leaves. If we use this dark energy, they grow more rapidly. Now, now, are you aware that astronomers have proven, in the, or at least seem to have proven in the last couple of years, that uh, dark energy is the major component of the universe? There's more dark energy than anything else put together in the universe. Um, how'd you get it into this bottle? <laughs> well, I don't know how we got it into this bottle. Uh, that's pretty amazing. I, I believe it's probably true. They pro there probably is a lot of dark energy up there. <laughs> yeah, but the, but the thing is, the dark energy, I'm sure there's dark energy in this bottle, but of course there's plenty of dark energy outside the bottle too. And yet if you buy it in the bottle, it costs you a lot more than if you just scoop it up here in the store. Um, have you seen this stuff work? I mean, does it is it really repulsive in the sense that it makes these plants grow bigger? Well, all I can say is right on the front of this bottle, it says it stinks, but it rocks. And from what I've heard from the guys that come in here and buy it, they, they agree it, it really does stink. So that must mean that the universe really must have some odor about it too, huh? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I don't know whether that comment passes the smell test. It's just remarkable to me that somebody in the hydroponics business would be uh, so in touch with the latest developments in cosmology. Um, uh, yeah, it amazes me too. <laughs> <laughs> Andre, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you can buy a certain kind of dark energy from Andre, but scientists are looking for the real deal. And researchers trying to learn more about dark energy and dark matter were among those that journalist Anil Anathaswamy visited as he circled the globe to look at today's cutting-edge physics. Along the way, he learned about the scientists themselves and just what sort of person wants the answers so bad that they'll put up with extreme conditions of wet, hot, dark and cold. You've been to a lot of uh, laboratories. You've seen a lot of scientists at work. Are, are they any different when they're working at the South Pole? I mean, just being at the South Pole sounds like not your average lab experience. It's not your average lab experience, yes. It's an extremely harsh environment. I mean, you land at the South Pole, and within 10 minutes of walking, you're tired. It's, it's 9,000 feet high. Nobody, you know, most people don't realize the altitude of the place. You're standing on three kilometers of ice. And that's an extraordinary place to do any kind of work. And remember, you have to wear all these clothes. You have to wear about 13 to 15 kilograms of heavy sort of extreme cold weather gear. And then you have to do all these fine experiments where you're wiring up detectors in this extreme cold. And they are tough people. Most of them are hard drinking people. After eight hours of drilling in the ice, they come back into the South Pole Station and uh, you just sit with them with large numbers of bottles of beer and whiskey. And yeah, it's a, it's a very different environment. Maybe we should shift gears and talk about someplace a little warmer. You've also been to the Very Large Telescope in Chile. Yes. Where is that? Describe what that looks like. So the, the, the particular place that I went to is called Paranal, Cerro Paranal or Mount Paranal. And it's high up in the Chilean Andes. Oddly, it's both warm and very cold uh, because it's one of the driest places on Earth and the telescope is built uh, at a high altitude. So it does get very cold at night. And um, 
the reason I went there was to see this extraordinary quartet of telescopes collectively called the Very Large Telescope. Astronomers do have a way of naming their telescopes, uh, like Very Large Telescope. Yeah, or very unimaginative, aren't yeah, they? Well, you, sh you should hear the next one in line is called the Extremely Large Telescope, <laughs> and, and the one after that, the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. So that apart, it is an extraordinary um, piece of engineering out there. So the reason I went there was to understand why do we have to go to such places to build telescopes. And it turns out that the Earth's atmosphere is a big enemy for telescopes, especially the lower layers of the atmosphere, the turbulence, the water vapor. All of that can uh, mess up light that has been traveling for 10 billion years, and it comes to Earth and within a fraction of a second can get smudged. So they tend to end up on these mountaintops where the atmosphere is thinner. You're above the turbulent layers. And uh, especially in the Atacama, it's very dry. The place where I went to, it hasn't rained uh, for decades. Uh, there's not a blade of grass outside and no life absolutely apart from astronomers. And uh, so that also makes the uh, atmosphere really good for ob observing. The, there's one other peculiar climactic condition out there. There's uh, along the coast of Chile, there's a Humboldt current that tends to suck down the cloud cover down below the summit of these peaks. So when you're standing up on Mount Paranal and you look down towards the coast, you see these bank of clouds, the kind of things that you would see from an airplane at 40,000 feet, except these clouds are down now to 5,000, 4,000, 6,000 feet, and it's extraordinary. Yeah, well, <laughs> in fact, it's sort of ethereal, right? You're up on this mountaintop and you're surrounded by clouds. Did you get some sense for the kinds of science that they're doing there at the Very Large Telescope? Yes. Again, I was particularly interested in the implications for cosmology. And one of the things they are studying is the nature of dark energy. And the way that you would study that by using these telescopes is by looking at very distant supernovae, type 1a supernovae, which are regarded as standard candles. And you can use these supernovae to figure out the way the rate of expansion of the universe has changed over time. And we know uh, from studies of about a decade ago that the expansion of the universe, instead of slowing down uh, a few uh, billion years after the Big Bang, has actually started accelerating. So the rate of expansion of the universe is you know, speeding up. And uh, astronomers and cosmologists have attributed this to something called dark energy, the energy of the vacuum of space. And that's all we really know about it. We don't quite understand whether this dark energy has changed with time, uh, whether it's going to get less or more, and, and we need to study it more. And these telescopes are, like the VLT, are at the forefront of such studies. Chile is also known not only for its observatories. I think the, the biggest uh, optical telescopes in the world are in Chile, right? And, yes. But it's also known for earthquakes. Uh, is that a concern when you're up there at Paranal? Uh, yes, uh, yes, very much. And, and uh, the designers of the telescopes have taken that into account. I was very taken aback by how, how they've accounted for this. When I went into the dome of one of the four uh, telescopes of the VLT, uh, each telescope has an 8.2-meter mirror, which is a giant piece of glass, about 23 tons in, in weight. And uh, because the mirror is so heavy, when the telescope is moving uh, in terms of observing a star or a galaxy, the mirror tends to warp just by the motion. And uh, in order to keep the shape uh, accurate, the mirror rests on about 150 pistons, which are pulling and pushing at the mirror in order to keep the shape precise. But what that means is the mirror is actually floating. It's not anchored to anything. It's actually just resting on these pistons. And the moment there's a tremor, any indication of a tremor, there are these clamps all around the primary mirror which just latch onto the mirror and lift it off. They just, just pull it off the pistons and anchor it to the superstructure. And the superstructure is designed to sway with any earthquake. So essentially then the mirror doesn't rattle inside the cage and break. And, and it's worked. Tremors have happened at the VLT, and this mechanism has worked. It's a, that's a truly incredible. Well, we, we've we've talked about above ground uh, observatories, and in the case of Antarctica, you know, in the ice. But you've actually been below ground as well. You've been to places like uh, the Sudan Mine, and you've been to the Large Hadron Collider. Maybe you could tell me what are these two experiments after? So the the Sudan Mine uh, is a experiment that's looking for dark matter. So the idea there is that the Earth and indeed our galaxy is 
completely awash in dark matter particles and the Earth should be plowing through a sea of such particles. And if we were to witness the collision of one such dark matter particle with some sort of detector that we built, then hopefully we can say that we've seen dark matter. We think it's out there, but we don't know anything about it. And just one such collision, studying a collision like that, would give us a lot of information. The problem is that the signal that you would expect from a dark matter particle hitting a detector, say, of germanium or, or silicon, a crystal of germanium or silicon, there are many, many particles on the surface of the Earth that could cause the same signal. It's just background noise. There's from cosmic rays, from ambient radioactivity, all sorts of things. So uh, the physicists, what they've done is they've basically gone underground. So this particular mine is an old, old mine, abandoned now in northern Minnesota. How, how deep it is? It's about uh, half a mile deep. Half a mile deep. Yeah, and uh, so I went down uh, in this one rattling cage. That's all they have, which was built uh, when the mine was built in the 1880s and closed in the 1960s. It's a terrifying ride, three <laughs> minutes long. Again, it's terrifying for me because it was the first time all the others seemed perfectly fine with it. And that's where they're doing the experiment. They're using the Earth as a shield against all sorts of noise that would be at the surface. Yeah, it seems like, you know, if, if it's comfortable, it's not modern physics. It's the impression I'm getting. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, I got that impression too. And uh, I slowly realized that that's because the unanswered questions in physics have become so difficult to answer that uh, the experiments that you need now are just extreme. And uh, unlike uh, the 19th and 20th century, when relatively speaking, the experiments were simple, I mean, they must have been difficult for their times, but uh, when we look back, they were, you know, Galileo rolling down a ball, down, you know, on an incline and figuring out laws of friction. So, um, I mean, not to mock them at all, it was obviously cutting edge for their times, but nothing like that will be enough now, and we, we have to go to extremes in order to answer some of these profound questions. More from journalist Anil Anathaswamy when he heads to Geneva, or rather under Geneva, but first, Are We Alone remembers extreme physics... 17th century style, when Galileo moved to disprove Aristotle's theory that objects of different mass accelerate at different rates. 291, 292, Pisano, so many stairs. And why couldn't you build this thing vertical? With one pound in one hand, ten pounds in the other... At least I'm working off that tortellini. 293. This is extreme. I'm almost there. 294. Finalmente. Now to lean out, I will drop each of these weights at the same time and, and show that objects accelerate at the same rate. There they go. They landed. Hey, Luigi, did you observe that? Oh, me dispiace, Galileo. I missed it. Can you do it again? I, I was buying a gelato. Again? Sure, no problem. Wouldn't want you to miss out on any gelato while I'm overturning the laws of physics. I'll be right down. Up next, could we reach the end of physics? It's Physics Frontiers on Are We Alone? A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone? We have one more stop on the tour of extreme physics experiments with journalist Anil Anathaswamy. That's Geneva, Switzerland. For me, the, the best example of the extremes to which we go now to answer, as you say, these fundamental questions of, of, of physics, of, of really of science, mm. is the Large Hadron Collider. Of course, most people have heard of it. Describe what it was like to be there because you really went down inside the tunnel. So, um, yes, I did go to see the Large Hadron Collider. It's, it's been in the news a lot, and it's an amazing uh, 
piece of engineering. So the idea is that there is this tunnel near Geneva, 27-kilometer-long tunnel, inside which there are two beams of protons rotating in, you know, uh, in opposite directions. And at four points along this 27-kilometer-long tunnel, these beams cross and collide. At the points where they collide, you get extremes of energy and vast numbers of particles being created. And, and it's the debris of this collision that the physicists are interested in studying. And I went down to see one such experiment called ATLAS. And uh, in order to build ATLAS, they had to dig out a cavern that's 100 meters underground. And uh, the the size, when you go down into the cavern for ATLAS, I'll just give you one example of how incredible that cavern is. It moves up. Uh, they've, they've excavated about 300,000 tons of rock, and it's just this large empty space inside the earth that is so big that it moves up against the earth as a bubble of air would in water. So at the rate of 0.2 millimeters a year, it actually moves up. It, it's just buoyant in rock. Is basically that. Uh, but more impressive is that the engineers knew that the cavern would move. So you've got thousands of tons of equipment, ma- making measurements that are literally the size of your width of your hair, and all of this is moving. So they've got lasers tracking their own machinery to know where their own detectors are relative to each other, and it's, uh, it's a staggering piece of equipment. The big win here, the Higgs boson, is that what they're looking for first and foremost? Um, that's the top line that is given out to everyone. Yes, that's the so-called God particle that if we find it, it'll explain how other elementary particles get their mass, but there are bigger prices uh, awaiting us at the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, and for instance, we might create a dark matter particle. If we did that, that would be an astonishing confirmation of our theories. Anil Anathaswamy, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, It's my pleasure, Seth. Anil Anathaswamy is an editor for New Scientist magazine in London and the author of The Edge of Physics, A Journey to Earth's Extremes to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe. So all these scientists in Russia, Antarctica, Minnesota, Geneva, Chile, are they doing the last big physics experiments? Once they find the answers, and assuming they do, what then? And what if that isn't all? Theoretical physicists such as Leonard Susskind suggest that there may be many universes with multiple physics or even different realms within our own universe, each with its own physics. Leonard, all these large-scale experiments, often at the ends of the Earth, much work, much effort, such big aspirations. When it's all done, will we finally understand all of physics? Beats me. I really don't know. We do our best to understand what's in front of us, the experiments, the concepts, and at any given time, we do our best to to push the curtain back a little bit, whether the curtain will ever be pulled uh, completely back so we see everything and what Steve Weinberg calls a uh, final theory, I really don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. And in some sense, it's not really what we do. The excitement of it is not knowing what we're going to find. And even if we're going to find anything, well, we're going to find something for sure. But whether we're going to find the final theory or not, who knows? My own uh, feeling is the only thing that would be worse than not finding a final theory would be finding a final theory. What would be left to do? <laughs> it might put uh, future physicists... I mean, that might not be a job opportunity for for our descendants, you know, physicists. Well, that's, well, that's true. Kind of obsolete. That's true. But even worse for me personally is if we found one tomorrow, I would have nothing to do the next day. <laughs> well, <laughs> well let, me, let, me, let me switch gears slightly here. In the last hundred years, there's truly been a revolution in physics. I think that's fair to say. We have relativity, quantum mechanics, something called the standard model, which apparently describes rather well, the menagerie of elementary particles that make up all matter. So what's not to like? I mean, what are we missing here? Well, (laughs) we are missing, among other things, the basic set of principles which tells us why the standard model is what it is. The standard model is a very beautiful theory of elementary particles, but it has about 20 free parameters, 20 numbers in it that nobody knows where they come from. It has a set of particles which seem very, very arbitrary. It has an electron with a mass which is a certain thing. It doesn't have another kind of particle with this or that properties. We really don't know why the rules are what they are, and we suspect very much there's a set of rules underlying these rules, a set of principles which say the world has to be this way or that way, 
or maybe there are not such a set of rules, but at the moment it's very unsatisfying in that the whole thing seems very arbitrary. This leads to what is an ever-popular idea in science, and that is that there's something wrong about the fact that our universe seems to be nicely set up for life. You know, you change a few of these numbers here and there and stars don't work, we wouldn't be sitting in California having this discussion. Can you tell me how we could solve this problem with parallel universes? Because that's being offered as a solution. It certainly is being offered as a solution. In fact, it's the only only solution which to many of us seems to make much sense. But the idea is fairly simple. It's fairly similar to the question of why the Earth happens to be at just the particular distance that it is from the sun. Well, if you go out in space, you'll find a lot of planets. Many of them will be at different distances from their suns. The ones which are close will be too hot for life. The ones which are far will be too cold for life. Where will life be found? It will be found on the planets which are at the right distance for them to have the right temperature that you don't get boiled or frozen. So when you ask why is the Earth at the distances it is, just the distance it is from the sun, one of the things you have to take into account is we just wouldn't be here to ask the question if the Earth was closer to the sun, much closer to the sun, or much further. The idea that you're referring to goes something like this. The universe may be very, very much bigger than the portion we can see. It might also be varied. It might vary from place to place. In some places, the properties of elementary particles may be one thing. In other places, the properties of elementary particles may be another thing. In some places, certain constants of nature may be way, way different than they are here. And the point is, where do we live? What portion of this enormously big universe do we live in? We live in those places where the properties of nature are such that we can be here, period. This is an idea, it's called the anthropic principle, and as time goes on, it seems more and more attractive for a number of reasons. First of all, we do believe the universe is very much bigger than we can see. Second of all, we do believe it's varied. We believe that there are places in the universe where the electrons have different masses. We believe there are places where the constants of nature are different. So the question of why we live in a place where the constants of nature are exactly what they are boils down to the same question as about the Earth. We live where we can live, which involves certain restrictions on what nature is like. Certain questions will not have any answer except nature had better be the way it is so that uh, we can be here. But doesn't that sort of take away some of the interest in physics? Because now physics isn't really universal. It just happens to be you're studying the physics of the part of the multiverse, if you will, where we could be studying physics. We don't know about the universe. It may be that as you move around in space over the vastness of the hugeness of this thing that we call the multiverse, the properties of nature may change. The properties of electrons may change. And in many places, they may be extremely inhospitable. Should we take it as a matter of disappointment that we were unable to predict from first principles what the nature of our local environment is? I don't think so. I think we should simply say we've learned something new. We've learned that many of the properties of the universe or, or our portion of the universe are environmental facts. Now, this is not a done deal. We don't know if the universe really is that big and really is that varied, but it's a uh, conjecture which many, many physicists and cosmologists believe today. I'm speaking with Leonard Susskind, professor of physics at Stanford University. Leonard, one of the most amazing developments in science of the last decade or so is the realization that the overwhelming majority of the universe is missing in action. You know, dark matter might be, uh, you know, I don't know, one, one quarter of the cosmos, dark energy, maybe 70% of the cosmos. Steven Weiberg told us that figuring out what dark energy is might be a door to profoundly new physical insights. you agree with that? I do agree with it. First of all, dark matter is probably just particles. It's probably particles that we haven't yet discovered because our accelerators are not big enough yet to produce them in the laboratory. We will discover them in time. And in time, we will, we will understand what dark matter is, and I don't think it's going to be a great mystery. It's just going to be particles that we haven't discovered yet. Dark energy is another puzzle, and a much, much deeper puzzle. All modern theories of quantum mechanics predict that there will be something called dark energy, that the universe is filled with this kind of energy 
which doesn't clump into galaxies, which doesn't clump at all, and it's called dark energy, all modern theories predict it. The problem is they predict much too much of it. And the real puzzle is not why is there dark energy. The real puzzle is why there is so little of it. So modern theoretical physics is trying to wrestle with the fact, not that the universe is filled with dark energy, but that it's almost empty, almost devoid of dark energy, and we don't know why. You've done major work on string theory. Do you think string theory bears on the dark energy problem? I think it very likely does, but not as directly as string theorists would have liked. String theorists would have liked the direct explanation of why the dark energy is so small, why it's so, why there's so little of it. And I think what they're going to get is I think they're going to get a theory which says that there's a vast variety of different possible kinds of environments where the dark energy could be almost anything. And again, it's going to come down to what kind of universe can we live in and the fact that if there was too much dark energy, much more than there is, then the universe would become a terribly inhospitable place. Kind of blow apart. It would just blow itself apart. Galaxies would be blown apart, but even worse, planets would be blown apart, and even worse, atoms and molecules would be blown apart. So very likely, at least in some of our view, what string theory is going to tell us is that there is just this enormously diverse collection of possibilities, and the universe may be filled with them, one place to another, different values of the dark energy. And where can we live? We can live where the dark energy is small enough that it won't blow us to smithereens. Will string theory be correct? Will it be part of the answer? I think so. Most of my friends think so. That's uh, well, Maybe they wouldn't be my friends if they didn't think so. <laughs> but seriously, uh, most of the theoretical physics community thinks that string theory has a good chance of being at the bottom of, uh, of or maybe not at the bottom, but deeper down into the structure of nature. I think the answer is always expect surprises. <laughs> Leonard Suskin, thank you so much for talking with me. You're very welcome. Leonard Suskin is professor of theoretical physics at Stanford University. And here's something that comes as no surprise. We are at the end, if not of physics, at least of our show. Our thanks to Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere in the solar system depends upon our understanding of how the universe works. If you've been listening to Physics Frontiers and you just can't get enough of our program, please visit our website, radio.seti.org. If you have a foolproof experiment to prove string theory, visit your local physics department. (laughs) They'll be happy to see you. And if you're really keen, become a member of our Are We Alone fan club on Facebook. Hey, Jay. Oh, hey, Gary. What's up? We need to record a little ad that goes in the podcast, letting people know they can stream the show on their phone with the new Are We Alone app. Oh, okay. We should probably also mention that the app comes with bonus content not available in the podcast. Right. Oh, and also that the app is available for the Android now as well as the iPhone. And that once you download it, you can listen to Are We Alone whenever and wherever you want. Yep, even old episodes. Cool. When do you want to record this? We just did. J- just now? Yep. Does, does that mean we should stop talking now? Yeah, that would probably be best. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.